Take your Bibles now and open them up to Luke chapter 16, verse 13. How many of you guys love going to other people's house for dinner? Okay. Okay. All the extroverts, yeah. All the introverts just got like, you know, a fever. Like, uh, uh, you know. It kind of depends on who's cooking or what's going on, you know, or what's going to be discussed at the dinner table. And Jesus is at dinner with some friends and some fans and some foes. It's the Sabbath day, and he's got people everywhere, and he's having dinner with them. And one of the interesting things about having dinner with people is not just what you eat, but what's spoken of. We call it table talk. And most of us get it. There's certain rules when you're eating at a friend's house. You know, we don't talk about politics. We don't talk about religion. And we don't talk about work. You know, those are kind of the rules here. And Jesus doesn't care about the rules. And so he brings up everything under the sun. And even when they're squirming in their seats about the topics at hand, Jesus cranks it up and says, let's talk about some other uncomfortable things. Last week, he talked about money and management and stewardship. And he used a story talking about the unjust steward the guy that was getting fired for doing a bad job. And then on his last day, he took care of himself with the resources of his master. And his master looked at him and said, not only are you an unjust steward, <laughs> you're actually pretty smart, good job. And he, and he commended him for what he had done. And then Jesus went on to exhort that group then and us as well to be shrewd with our finances. And not just our finances, but our days, our talents, our dollars, everything you've been given by God today, he's given to you to leverage for his glory and others' good. You know that, right? Figure it out. You might have a lot of good, a lot of days, a lot of dollars. God's given to you those resources on purpose for his glory and others' good. And he doesn't want us to blow it. He doesn't want us to miss out on the opportunity, lest we all become unjust stewards, Instead, he says, leverage it, man. Be a shrewd steward. The word shrewd means wise, cunning, even crafty. How can I make my life count? As a matter of fact, when I drive around, from time to time, I'll just look at people and stereotype them. Do you do the same? Stop it, okay? I'm trying to stop, too. But what I, I ask this question, what is that person doing? And I don't even know. I just ask myself, what is that person doing to influence other people? This is the question you need to ask yourself every single day. It's been said before that the, the goal of life is happiness. Have you seen that before? Have you heard that like in a secular conversation? Man, the goal of life is just happiness. That is one of the most selfish statements I've ever heard in my life. My personal happiness. Did you know the goal of life, listen please, is to influence and to invest in other people? Your whole existence, whether you're a man or a woman, single or married, young or old, is to invest in other people. And if you're only living for your best life now or your own self-interest or your own preconceived ideas that'll make you so happy, not only are you wrong, okay, but it won't work. And God doesn't want you to be wrong and live a life of unfulfillment. The more you seek to please yourself and serve your life personally, the more you'll find yourself empty and discouraged and despairing. I promise you this is the truth. Paul would say in Acts 20 to a group of Ephesian elders, it's better to give than to receive. Do you know who he told that to? It wasn't to a congregation before they took an offering. It's better to give than receive. Pass the hats quick, you know. <laughs> That's not what he said. He said it's better to give than to receive to a group of senior leaders, elders from Ephesus. He said, guys, you're the main dogs. You're in charge. And I need you to understand it's better that you give your life away than receive something. And Jesus is bringing this up in table talk and conversation here. Look at what he says in verse 13. This is where we ended. He says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money is what Jesus says. And he ends this illustration of this shrewd steward who leveraged what he had for his future. And now he says, you can't have two masters. This makes kind of sense to us, doesn't it, mathematically? Like if you had two masters, one would be offended, one would be served, one would be neglected. And so what Jesus says here is you can't serve God and money. You can, we learned this last week, serve God with your money. Hello? Amen? Easy? You can do that, but you can't serve your money as your God. You will hate the God who has served you. You got to pick one or the other. In this verse, verse 13, he says, servant, serve, serve. Three times he uses the same kind of verb, adjective, description. Serve, servant, serve. This helps me a lot, by the way. 
when I wake up every morning and I remind myself that I'm a servant of God, it establishes the whole operating system of the day. When I remind myself I'm not here to serve me, but I'm here to serve my spouse, my three kids, my community, and my church, oh, now I know what I'm doing. But when I seek to be served, how does that go for you? Weirdy. And I wake up and I'm like, Lord, I, I got to just deny myself and become what the Bible calls a bond servant. You guys know what a bond servant is, right? We probably don't. We weren't there. I'll tell you what it is. A bond servant would be a slave who was owned by a master. And when that slave fulfilled his term and was then released, allowed to go, that bond servant would have a choice to look at his master and say, you know what? I kind of like you. And I like your family. And I like everything you stand for. I would like to now choose to serve you without having to. And they would take an awl and pierce that servant's ear and put a loop through it. And that servant would be then known in the community as a bond servant, somebody who chose to be the servant of a greater master. This is so fun. This, this helps me do everything I do. And Jesus says, you can't serve anything and God, specifically money. Now, how you respond to that is very crucial. As a matter of fact, let me just say it more broad. How you respond to anything God says is very crucial. Your response. Did you know that God says it, it's true, and that settles it? I always say this. You guys hear this. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Did you know that God said it, even if you don't believe it, it's still settled? You know what I'm saying? I don't believe it. Well, you, it's okay. Good luck. You know what I mean? God said it. You don't have to say I believe it. God said it. It's true. That settles it. And so when Jesus gives us a directive, an instruction, how we respond is important. Look at the next verse. This is brand new territory. We might have looked at it last week. I can't remember. Verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things, and they derided him. Pfft. Stuck up their nose at him. They heard that you can't serve God and money. Pfft. What? he talking about because these guys in their own estimation were serving god and they had lots of money and they couldn't see the distinction they couldn't see the difference as a matter of fact in that day two theologies were prevalent that is if you serve god you'll be wealthy or if you are wealthy you are considered holy have you, have you seen that doctrine in our culture today the health wealth and prosperity movement the name it and claim it blab it and grab it god wants you you know healthy wealthy and wise and with a full head of hair and all of you without a full head of hair, I think, what? You know, and God wants all these things for you and all of this stuff. And Jesus says, no, no, you can't have two masters. It, it doesn't work that way. They derided him. They mocked him. They pushed back on this. This is one particular contextual subject we could talk about, the love of money. We'll talk about that just briefly. But their reaction is kind of important for us to at least look at. How do you respond to God's word? Do you delight in it? Or do you deride it? You see, every time you read God's word, it's going to tell you something about God and something about yourself. And you need to plan ahead how you're going to react. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 1 that the man of God delights himself in the word. And he meditates day and night. And he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And in it, it's fruit every seed. You guys know it. He delights in God's word. Have you read the Bible and been rubbed the wrong way before? Has this happened to you? If you haven't been rubbed the wrong way yet, you're not reading it right. Just so you know. Like you're reading it wrong. You get the wrong translation. You know, somebody autographed the front that shouldn't have, you know. And you, I could name names. I'm choosing not to right now. Just self-control, self-control. When I read this book, as a matter of fact, the more I read this book, the more I realize how backwards I am and how messed up I am. I've been doing this for 20 years now. And the more I read, I'm like, oh, Wow, I need some help, Lord. These guys, when they heard Jesus teach, they didn't delight, they derided. And I warn you, as your friend and pastor, to keep your heart soft towards whatever Jesus says, to receive it. And if you think something's wrong, something is wrong, it's you. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, when he was addressing one of his churches early on, he said, the Apostle Paul and he called himself one of the least of the apostles. It's kind of cool. It's like he knew. He's the, the least. And then he addressed himself two years later. He said, you know what? I'm actually less than the least. Whoa. He'd grown in his humility. And finally, when he addresses himself, he says, you know what? I'm not the less. I'm not the least. I'm actually the chief of sinners. Now, either Paul had become worse in his days and became an underground gambler, sinner guy, 
or he had become more aware of God's glory in his own infirmities. I actually believe that as you grow in Christianity, you sin less and repent more. I'm going to say that again. In Christianity, you sin less and you repent more. Your sins are smaller and less offensive, yet your heart and spirit to the Lord is more grieved at the smallnesses of your life. These guys sitting with Jesus at dinner deride him, whoa, mock him, push back. And I, I just, I warn you and me, when the Bible says something uncomfortable or not fun or difficult to understand, it is you who are the student and need to understand and to change and adjust. It is me that is under construction, not him. Then there are lots of people in our community, culture, our society that have chosen to mock God's word. It says that? No. And they deride him. This is what he says clearly and over and over and repeatedly. Nope, going to reject that. Have you, have you seen this in our culture? People reject God's clear word? Careful, careful. Let me say it this way, though. There are other people who esteem God's word even above his own name as he does in Psalm 138. There are other people who esteem what Jesus says and they are trying their hardest to follow after him. Let that be the case for you and I, right? My wife and I and kids were in Sun River on Friday. And after lunch there in Sun River, we decided to get some BJ's ice cream because the best way to get home from Sun River to Newport is with a sugar rush, you know, just buckle the kids in. Sit down, you know, and we're doing this. And so we went to BJ's ice cream, and as we walked into BJ's, we got our ice cream, and as soon as we walked in, the person behind the counter, she's standing like this, and she said, are you guys from Newport? And I was like, do we get ice cream that much? Like, what's going on here? And no, the beard gave you away, and she used to work in Newport, and we got our ice cream, and, and as we were preparing to leave, another family came in, a husband, wife, and grandpa, and grandma, and about four little kids. And as I was leaving, we were getting ready to take off, and I already had my beard covered in ice cream. It was kind of embarrassing, but it was already happening. And this guy shouts to me as I was walking out. He goes, hey, I like your sunglasses. And I, I knew what he meant when he said that because my sunglasses say Jesus is real right across the side. And I was like, oh, yeah, I know what's going on here. And so I looked at him. I said, really? I said, I said thank you, man. That's awesome. And Nemo, my nine-year-old, was standing there right with his ice cream, and he said, Dad, give him your glasses. <laughs> and I looked at Nemo. I was like, that's right, I should give him my glasses. And so, so, I, so I asked this guy, I said, would, would you wear them? Would you wear them? And he got excited and he stood up and he said, I would, I would love to wear them. And most people, they had, oh, no, it's too much. He, he wanted these glasses. And so I said, get over I gave him the glasses. And turns out his name's Lane Johnston. I didn't even get his name then. I looked him up on Facebook last night on the internet. And he's a pastor from Tennessee that just moved to Redmond, planted a church in Redmond. He's having church today at 10 o'clock. And his church is called The Heart of Jesus. Now, it was so fun just to see. Here's a guy with his family just getting BJ's ice cream. He's a pretty smart guy. And he's leading his family and not deriding the things of God, but delighting in the things of God. You know, it's really cool. And I, this dawned on me in the drive home. We got lunch previously at this restaurant that will remain nameless. And we ordered our food, and it took 45 minutes for the food to be delivered. That's a long time we were there. It was, and it was kind of sitting in the sun. You know, from the coast. You know, we're just dying. The food was good, it was fine, blah, blah, blah. The day's spent now because we're into a deficit. And as we were leaving, it dawned on me. I was like, hey, honey, I told this to Crystal. I said, if our food would have came on time, we would have got our ice cream earlier and not met that couple. And I believe that the Lord wanted to encourage us and encourage him, and, and so we repented of our anger towards this restaurant. And uh, <laughs> are you an American? Am I the only American here that gets mad when things aren't like that, you know? Uh, look at these guys. Verse 14, it says, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things and they derided him. I just need to say this quickly and move on. We all understand that being a lover of money is the root of all evil. Do we not? We know it's 1 Timothy 6.10. To love money is to have a root of evil. I would say this. If that's the root, what's the fruit? How are you going to see it? Because we all love money. Can I just, don't be a hypocrite today. I told you this last week. You don't have to have a lot of money to love it. Okay, you can actually have a lot of money and not love it. Having a lot of money is not a sin. You actually can have no money, zero dollars, and love it more than those who have lots of dollars. It has nothing to do with the amount you have. It has to do with how much it has you. Do, do you love money? If you have a dollar or two, if, if all you can think about is money. Why, though, is the love of money a root of all evil? I'm just going to give you three symptoms that might be evident in your life because you love money too much. 
These are areas that don't have to be sinful, but they might be in your life or in my life. Okay, these three areas are status, comfort, and security. We love money. It's the root of all evil because of these three things amongst others. Status is one of them. We love money because we want people to think better of us than we actually are. We want to have the stuff that makes us look good, and we all have this in our lives. Why would we love money? We just want to look better. Nebuchadnezzar did this. You guys remember that in Daniel chapter 4? He looked at what he had. He's like, dude, this is pretty legit. And God disciplined him for seven years, and he lost it all. And by God's grace, it was restored to him. And I believe we're going to kick it in heaven with Nebuchadnezzar forever. How, how is status, though, messing with you? Okay, if you're a 2018 American, you need to get a hold of that. Surrender it to the Lord. I believe you can use and leverage your status for God's glory and others' good. You shouldn't have a non-status, you know, your status update on Facebook, etc. Ways to redeem that. The other thing that comes up in my mind, though, is comfort. This idea of comfort. I just want the good life. I want all the toys, all the good things, all the trinkets, all the stuff. And that doesn't have to be a sin. But if that's what you're living for and you can't live life without all the best comforts, if you just can't do it. I saw a Facebook post this morning that said, we often find ourselves depressed because we haven't taken the time to count our blessings and I love comfort just as much as everybody else. And I believe that the root can produce a fruit of sin and really dissatisfaction when in reality, most of us are good. Like, we're good. I don't have everything I want, but I have everything I need. Is that your story? I got everything I need. I'm doing all right. The third thing that I would just put out there quickly before we move on, it's not just status and not just comfort, but security. Some of us worship this security. I've got enough money for the future. I've got a retirement fund. I've got a pension fund. I've got a long-term disability insurance. I've got the, all the things over here. And I've got the investments. And maybe you even have a little hoarding going on. You've got all this stuff. And your security is in all of those things. And I think the Lord would say, hey, where's your security at? It's okay to have a retirement fund and a pension fund and a long-term disability fund and have all that stuff figured out. That's okay. But where's your security at? Is it, is it in the Lord? And these guys Jesus is speaking to were rich in that day. The Pharisees had the most money of anybody there. It was a business. It was a job. They got paid well. And so Jesus here, knowing that where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He tells them this about money, lest they find themselves blowing it. Look what happens in verse 15. Because these guys are deriding him, and I just love the heart of Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Stop right there, eyes up here. First thing I want to point out is that in this deriding, sticking their nose up, this is what it means in the Greek. <laughs> You know how Jesus responds? He teaches them. Oh, man. You know why he teaches them? Because he loves them. You know who I love? Lovable people. How about you? It's easy to love lovable people. People that show a little bit of interest. People that show a little bit of hope and promise. People that show a little bit of respect and delighting in what you have to offer. You know how I respond to those who deride me? Oh, man. I do what I do, and then I repent quickly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not Jesus. Jesus loves them. He, and if you're like me, you're prone to maybe express love towards the lovable, those who receive your love, the down and out, or those who are more pliable, okay, because it's easier. And then those who push back or are prideful or disrespectful, I, just, I, I meet them right where they're at, and I, I usually put on that persona, and I, I need to repent and follow Jesus. Jesus here loves everybody, the uttermost to the guttermost. And it just, it convicts me. And here's why he loves them. And I need to say it this way too. Here's how he loves them. He gives them a hard teaching, kind of a throat punch. He's peeling back the layers of the onion, if you would, getting to the heart of the issue. And what he's about to do for these guys is give them really one of the hardest teachings and hardest table talk conversations you'll ever see. Why does he do that? Because like a doctor loves you, he'll do whatever it takes to save your life. Don't you love doctors? I mean, for real. Physicians, I respect them so highly. I'm so thankful for doctors. And a doctor, if you would, would look at you and say, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to take care of everything that needs to be done. And you might say to them, why are you holding a knife? They say, because I'm going to cut it off, man. Whatever it is. And that's love embodied. As they do for you what you need done. And Jesus loves you enough to say, hey, I'm going to get in there and do some surgery. You okay with that? Uh, okay, and I've told my story about having that little thing on my knee, you know, and a little growth. I didn't know what it was, and the doctor said there's a small, very, very small, 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 small chance it could be this very, very, very rare cancer. 
And so what we can do is measure it and check it in six months, or we could just cut it off now. I said, why would we measure it? Cut the sucker off, man. You need help? You want me to do it? Every time I look at that divot, that scar, I'm thankful that that thing's not there. And so Jesus, he says, you are those who justify yourself. He teaches them. And he says this, you justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So much there, I just need to touch on a few things for you to navigate and talk in your community groups later this week. First of all, Jesus says, you guys are trying to justify yourself before men. By the way, this is what we all do. The way we dress, the way we drive, the way we update our statuses on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're trying to justify ourselves before men. This is what we all do. When you put something on Facebook, you're trying to per, uh, project this persona of who you are so others would say, that's a good guy, that's a good gal. The other thing we do on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that is we go on there and see what everyone else is doing in order to justify ourselves before men by seeing what they're doing wrong. Can I get a hello? Do you do this? Do you ever go on Facebook just to see what everyone else is doing so you feel better about yourself? I love reading the news because at the end of every day I read the news, I find myself once again not in it. And it feels great. I'm like, yes, those people are blowing it so bad. And the Lord rebukes me. He says, you're trying to justify yourself, aren't you? Let me just say something about justification because it comes up here. Justification is a very important doctrine where you must be justified before God. As a matter of fact, the Bible declares that he looks at you if you're a Christian here. If you're not, you're in trouble. If you're a Christian here, the Bible says he looks at you as one who's been justified through Jesus Christ. He looks at you as if you've never sinned, justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Now, let me just expand on that. Wouldn't it be awesome if you gave your life to Jesus Christ and he said, you are now forgiven of all of your sins in the past. You're at zero, teared out, ready to go. Don't blow it. How many of you guys moving forward to be like, I can't move. I just sinned, you know, like. Justification actually means this. It means just as if I'd never sinned in the past. And he also looks at you as just as if you'd always done right in the future. It is a supreme gift. Jesus grants this to those who believe in him. Here's how it works. He takes your sins from you that you have committed, your evil atrocities, the difficulties and disappointments in your life. He takes those and he bore them on the cross and he paid for your sin and he died and was buried and separated from his father and then he rose victoriously and resurrected and now extends to you not just the exchange the forgiveness of your sins but now he gives to you his glory and riches and he says now you are heirs with me in heaven martin luther rightly called this the great exchange where christ takes your sin and gives you his righteousness your debt in your spiritual bank account has been paid for and now imputed into your account is the righteousness of Christ. How many of you guys have ever checked your bank account before and the bank has made a huge error and you have $10 billion? Ever happened to you? <laughs> the first thing you do is go on Amazon.com and buy everything. <laughs> I'm kidding. And when you check your spiritual bank account, it is unlimited zeros because of Jesus. Now here's the deal. He's talking to some religious guys. The Pharisees, they were doing this the wrong way. They actually looked at their wealth monetarily, their position in power, and their ability to then change, and we're going to see this in a minute, to change and manipulate the law to justify their lifestyle. When <sighs> Jesus wasn't having it. And like a doctor coming in, sitting you down, saying, we're going to put you under, because this surgery is going to be gnarly. But I love you, so I'm going to tell you how it is. Matter of fact, it says here, what? It's highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's kind of a tough word, that word abomination, isn't it? Abomination. I'm not quite sure exactly what it means in the Greek, but I think it means God wants to bomb that nation when they do that. Like, <laughs> that's just how I would teach my kids. No, I'm just kidding. It's not cool. And he says it here, what men esteem high, God's not impressed by. Contextually, I'll unpack this, but can I just say in our culture, there are things in our world that men esteem as high. They protect they promote, there's pride. Things in the world today, right now, the world says, this is right, this is good, this is right. And God says, the law hasn't changed from beginning to end, from Genesis to Malachi to John the baptizer to Jesus Christ. And that's what he's gonna say. 
Jesus says in this portion, not one jot or tittle is gonna fall away from the law. It's all good. You guys know that? We're a grace-based church. We're a new covenant church. Your, your tendency could be, if you've been in the church for a while, to just distance yourself from the law. I don't need that. That's not part of the deal anymore. No, no. We need that law because it leads us to Christ. And Christ comes in and fulfills that law, which you and I can't do perfectly. And then we find ourselves saved by grace. Well, here's the deal. Verse 16, he says it right here. The law and the prophets were until John, that's John the baptizer, his elder cousin, who, by the way, they killed. And when John the baptizer came, he said, this is the one who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus now is making sure they understand that he's not doing away with the law. You realize that, Bible students, that one of the accusations came in against Jesus was that he was doing away with the law of Moses. And he's like, what are you talking about? The law of Moses is good because it leads us to Christ. As a matter of fact, when you read the to-dos and the to-don'ts, again, as I've already said this, how are you guys doing with the to-dos and the to-don'ts? Not so good. And so that law leads us to Jesus, who did all well, who did none wrong, and who died in your place as our Savior. So what he says here in verse 17, verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, and since that time the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. Stop right there, eyes up here. When he says everyone is pressing into it, it could be taken a couple different ways. Number one, it could be a, a mark against these Pharisees who are missing the message of John the Baptist. Like, guys, everyone's getting fired up. We're all pressing into this thing. We're taking, all, we're taking over here. We're getting into this. And I would have that same word to some of you guys who are watching the church grow and life groups develop and people get baptized and things happen and yet you're not pressing in. And maybe that's what, you, maybe that's what I need, by the way. Okay? You, ever call, you ever text me or email me or call me and say, Luke, you need to press in. I will never reject that message. I promise you. I will say, I know. Thank you. Pray for me. I need to, I need to, and you need to press in as well. It could be, though, that Jesus was warning, saying the kingdom of God, the law, it's all here. And you know who's pressing in? All you crazy Pharisees. You guys are trying to twist it, trying to mess things up. There's a war for the church to become convoluted, diluted, and digressed. It could be either way, because both are happening, both are true. There's a war going on. Do you look at Christianity and church and spirituality and life as a war? Because if you don't, you're going to lose. Paul says it's a war, it's a race, it's a battle, it's a match. There's a prize, there's forfeiture, there's loss, there's sacrifice, there's rules. I'm an athlete kind of guy, so I like, I like all that stuff. There's standards. And to me, that helps me to press in. Verse 17, he does clarify that he's not against the law, but instead for it. He says, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Stop right there, eyes up here. At this point in the, in the dinner, I'm kind of tracking. It's all good. Jesus is laying some heavy truths down. Can't serve God in money. You got to press in. He knows your hearts. You guys are trying to justify yourselves, all of that. And all of a sudden, Jesus, in verse 18, he gives one verse, a standalone verse, on a topic that you just don't bring up at dinner. You just don't do it. I don't know what he's doing here. Maybe he didn't have his BJ's ice cream yet. He's just the sugar low. Or... While he's talking to these guys, maybe he looks at them and he says this. Then the next thing he brings up is divorce. By the way, next week he's going to talk about hell and eternal suffering. So Jesus isn't afraid to go there during dinner. So don't skip church next week or I'll know what's going on in your hearts. Look at what he says in verse 18. We're going to unpack it because it's right here. Out of nowhere, Jesus just brings this up. Because, because I believe in context, it was very important to those people at that dinner. It, it's important to us too here. We're gonna talk about that. Context is king in studying the Bible. This isn't about us specifically. We're gonna talk about divorce today. This is about them specifically. He says that whoever divorces his wife, most translators say, with the intention of marrying another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Then Jesus goes into this parable of Lazarus and Abraham. Okay, stop right there, eyes up here. He, he just kind of ends this teaching on, or this talk on, hey, by the way, if you get divorced, it's adultery, and you shouldn't do that. The reason he said that to them 
there. We're going to talk about it to us here now also. To them there, in that day, the rabbis had taken the ordinance that Moses had given them for divorce. There was an ordinance for divorce, biblical divorce. And they had taken that and they had perverted it and changed the law in order to justify themselves before men and to do whatever they wanted to do in their lifestyles. Jesus knows that about them. So at dinner, he's like, by the way, guys, there was probably a myriad of dudes sitting there that had been divorced for the sole purpose of finding another, better, different spouse, unbiblical divorces. And he says, when you do that, it's adultery, it's not okay. And I believe in that, because in that day, there was actually ordinances written by Moses that were interpreted by the leading rabbis of the day. And they took those ordinances that said, if your wife is unclean, that is ceremonial or holy, there's a reason for it and there's a whole rhythm there. They said, you know what that could mean? That could mean that she burnt your eggs. It's written down. If she oversalts your eggs or burns them, she's considered unclean. Go ahead and dismiss her and get a better one. I'm not messing with you. That was written. And so Jesus says, you know what? I don't like your rules. Did you know in that day, women didn't have a voice like they do today, that a woman could be put away, not taken care of, that these men had established a system of abuse and Jesus is not okay with their rules? And he said, when you guys do that, when you disassemble marriage, this holy covenant, it's not okay because they had done that. There was rules there that said if your wife wasn't as attractive as another wife, you could put her away and get another one. And this is the law that they had changed in order to accommodate their lifestyle. And Jesus says, hey, what you guys esteem high, uh, it's an abomination. Now here, now you guys pay attention. This is where the plane comes in hard and we have a rough landing today. So far we had a good flight, in-flight movie. The meal was all right, you'll get sick later. We're gonna land the plane, and what I could do here is a couple things. I could just keep going, or we could talk about it. I believe in our culture today, in our society, in our community, in our church, that divorce is an issue. This is not an exhaustive teaching on divorce, okay, from Jesus. It's just one, it's a one liner. Whoa, he just said that. And Jesus, is like, I'm just getting warmed up. We're talking about hell next. I'm like, whoa. If you want an exhaustive teaching from Jesus Christ, it's in Matthew 5, Matthew 19. Mark 10, and 1 Corinthians 7. And there are other teachings on divorce, remarrying, biblical understanding. This is not that portion. But here's what I'm going to say right now, and I need your guys' prayer, because I, I believe there's a, an epidemic in, in, in our culture, and we need to unpack this biblically in the, in the short time we have left. And let me just lay a little bit of groundwork here. There, there are three types of people here this morning. Married, divorced, and single. Okay, that's who's here this morning. 90% of you will be married in your life. That's statistics. 100% of you will be impacted negatively by a divorce at one point in your direct circle. A mom or dad, a grandma, a grandpa, a brother or a sister, a husband or a wife, a son or a daughter. 100% of you will be, oh yeah, yeah, my friend, my mom, my dad, oh. And so this is our issue. There are also three people here. There's married, there's divorced, and then there's single. And some of those married are divorced and remarried. You're married, though, in God's eyes. I'm gonna say what I say today, and I, I want those who are single to lean into the teaching. I'm looking at my mic here. Lean into the teaching and learn something and going with your eyes wide open. For those who are married here, maybe you could even hold your spouse's hand until it gets too sweaty and gross, then, then let go. But just, you know, sit next to them, just whatever, just, and love them, and lean into the teaching. If you can't hold your spouse's hand, then point number seven is for you. We'll get there in a minute. And if you're divorced here, I, I need you to understand something very clearly. God loves you, okay? He died for you. He esteems you. He has forgiven you. He restores what the locusts have eaten. His heart is for you, not against you. And so you might be here going, man, I should have skipped church today. But maybe the Lord has for you in the future something for somebody else in their mess. Let me quantify what I'm about to say with this warning. Divorce, using the Bible, is not a math equation where you can find 
articles and instances of divorce and teaching and say one plus one equals, well, if you did this and, and she did that and then he's over here and they say that, oh, it equals divorce. Easy. Okay, math is easy, right? Life is tough. And we don't look at divorce and relationships like a math equation. Oh, it's pretty easy. You did this and they did this. Done. No. There are hearts and lives and children involved. And so we treat this very sensitively. Math is easy, not a problem. Life, though, is tough. And this is a church, I believe, that navigates biblically to the best of our ability with people in their darkest of hours. I wish I could share with you the texts I received during the break from people watching online, confessing sins, asking for help, navigating through dark times. I get it. Number one, I already told you, this is not an exhaustive teaching. It's an illustration of sin in their lives at that time because they were using and abusing this idea of divorce in order to justify themselves and do whatever they want. I gave you the references to the verses that you can look up later. Point number two. Divorce is bad, divorce is a sin, but it's not the unpardonable sin. And you need to hear that. I, as your pastor and your friend, am accountable to tell you what the truth is. Divorce is bad, it is a sin. It's not the unpardonable sin, though. God can forgive you. God can cover you. God bled for that. He died for that. Restoration is a gift to you. But to stand up here and say, you know what, it just, it's not that bad, eh, as a matter of fact, anybody with an honest conclusion after divorce would say, oh yeah, <sighs> rough sledding. Wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Every situation is different. Everyone is complex. There are variables and factors in every marriage. But I must tell you, it is not good. It is bad, but it is forgivable. The Bible says in Malachi that God hates divorce, but the Bible also declares God does not hate those who are divorced. You guys know that, right? nor should we, nor do we. I think divorce is one of those issues in our churches that once it happens, we treat each other differently and there's a, diff there's a distance and unnecessary chasm. That's not how the Lord operates. The Lord runs to those who need ministry. Number three, there are biblical grounds for divorce. I would say though, my opinion, the majority of divorces today don't happen for biblical reasons. Mark chapter 10, Jesus, I'll quote him now. He says, the only reason you get divorced is a hard heart. My pastor, Mark Anderson, told me that the only reason people ever get divorced is for a hard heart. Then he went on to quantify that, and he said this. He said, you can get your heart hardened for a thousand different reasons. There are biblical grounds. I would say it this way. Biblical cases for divorce can be found, and it may even be permissible, but it might not necessarily be profitable. That's a case-by-case -case decision. As a matter of fact, at this church, we will always counsel for people to receive counsel, uh, to take uh, long-term decisions in their matrimony decisions, to not make those decisions rashly, even if there's biblical grounds. As a matter of fact, I, I believe, this is my own personal opinion, and it'll never happen, but I can share it with you guys, I think divorces should happen publicly with the same people that were at your wedding. For one, so you can give the gifts back. <laughs> like, let's just be honest. It's a racket. And, and for two, to, to have that accountability and that fellowship. What happens to me is I do weddings all the time and I go to what I did a wedding yesterday. It's beautiful. But what happens is a couple finds themselves in trouble. I get it. And then, then hearts get hard, and then divorce happens behind closed doors. And if people would humble themselves and ask for help and return to their first love, I, I believe that there could be a redemption. I, and, I, and again, and I, appreciate, I, I, I agree, this is complicated. Biblical grounds, just so you know, students, for divorce, sexual sin, as in adultery, unfaithfulness, that would be one. I'm, I'm only going to give you three, there, there may be more, but... The second reason for biblical divorce would be betrayal or abuse or treachery, an unsafe environment, unhealth. The third reason would be for desertion. First Corinthians 7 talks about an unbelieving spouse, just doesn't love you, doesn't love the Lord. 
And I, I need to say here, it's not a math equation. I've counseled with people that are married to unbelievers. God's given them a special grace, a special mercy. Okay, and if it's an unsafe environment, if there's abuse, obviously it's a different story. Life is tough and God is good. And, and, and it, needs to be, it needs to be done with biblical counsel, accountability, and wisdom. Number four, and we're done soon. I apologize for going too long. Here's the deal. Number, number four, we're not a church that condones or condemns divorce. Both are extremes. Some churches condone divorce. Just, yep, we're not going to hold you accountable. Keep you, oh, oh, and, and just write them off left and right. Then there's other churches that condemn divorce. Oh, you're divorced? Oh, wow, unforgivable sin, sorry. We're neither. We're in the middle trying to find biblical wisdom, counsel, and accountability. How can we hold your hands through this? We will walk you through this. I actually believe that God does miracles in marriages that are damaged, divorced. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says that God will finish the work he began, and the Bible says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. As a matter of fact, when I do weddings, I did this yesterday, and I spoke to the couple, Travis and Jillian Flat. And I said, the Bible declares that if you call upon him, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. That if you two know that, if you, if you, call, if you cash those checks in to the Lord, he'll heal your marriage. It's got to be in tandem. Okay? Husband and wife both have to be seeking the Lord. I said, you guys got this, though. I said, I wish I could make it easy for you guys, but it's not going to be easy because marriage is tough. It's gnarly. I'm just, I'm just being honest with you guys. Let me say three more things and we're done. This is for you who aren't married yet to lean in. Divorce is never final, especially if you have kids. Holidays and events, graduations, eventually weddings and grandkids, the layers of complexity and pain, the memories, the shared sorrow, confusion. If, if you're wondering, maybe it's just a divorce. Wow, it's done. It's not done. It's now just more difficult. And the, the depth, the difficulty. It's carried to the next and the following generations. Number six, two, two positive points, okay? So we can land with our wheels down. Marriage is good. It's a gift from God to us. It's one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to see a husband and a wife that both love Jesus come together. It is a celebration. Whenever I do premarital counseling, though, I always ask the couple, what do you think God made marriage for? And the guy's always like, sex, duh. I'm just kidding. And I, and I help them. I, I, I help them to understand. God created marriage for a lot of reasons, but the two primary ones I want you to consider are he created marriage to glorify himself, okay, and to refine you in the process. And when you understand that, that your marriage actually can glorify God, it's not about you, it's that important, and in the process he'll actually refine you, he'll make you a better man or a better woman, you guys know what refinement means, right? Refinement's a real fancy word for a chisel in your face. You know what I'm saying? Remember when we used to sing that song? Refiner's fire. Remember that? It's not called refiner's hot tub on purpose, okay? It's refiner's fire. And I tell these couples in premarital counseling, they're like, lovey-dovey, we love each other. That's why we're getting married. I'm like, eh, wrong answer. No. That's inconsequential, you know. You're getting married will help you to glorify God and to be refined in the process. And, and God's given us that love, body, mind, spirit. We love each other. But if you understand that, I can glorify God. Because see, God designed marriage to symbolize the church and its relationship with him. We're the bride of Christ. And it, it's so important. I, I believe that's why there's such an attack on marriage from Satan himself. It's a holy matrimony. Okay, it's super tough but it's super rewarding and it will glorify God and change you. Yesterday, when we concluded the ceremony, Ch Jillian and Travis, before they kissed, took communion. This was my advice to them. I said, before you guys, your first act of marriage should be communion. And they're like, dude, that's awesome, let's do it. And they also did a unity sand where they took the sand and poured it, you know, blue sand and white sand into one vessel. And the vessel they poured it into was a frame. And I noticed earlier that the slat that it would pour into was kind of narrow. And I realized this is going to make a mess. And so I told them that at the ceremony and everyone else. I said, when they do this sand thing to become one, there's going to be sand everywhere. It's going to be a mess because marriage is messy. And, it's, and you shouldn't be surprised at that, at that refinement. The last point is this, and we're done. If your marriage 
here today needs help, get it. Don't wait. Get on Amazon.com. Buy a book. Buy Paul Tripp's book, What Did You Expect? Get a counseling session with one of our pastors. Take your wife or husband on a date. Soften your heart. Repent. Pour into them. Return to your first love. Renew your vows. If your marriage is in trouble, get help. It won't get better unless you go to the doctor. Do it. Second point, and I'm almost done. If you've been divorced and you need help, moving on, healing, closure, get it. Get it. Get healed. Get delivered. Get freedom. Get renewed. Get remarried in Jesus' name for his glory and your refinement. We've offered it here before. We will offer it again, a class called Divorce Care. Those who have been traumatized by divorce, who have been separated from their spouse through any circumstances. And if you're here, if you're up against the ropes and you're a discounted Christian and you're disengaged and you're depressed and dis whatever, get help, okay? Get help. It's not the unforgivable sin. With God, it's never too late. And if you're married or single here, Take these words deep. I'm going to have the worship team come up now. Take these words deep into your heart and ask the Lord to give you a forbearing mind, one that would be ready to wed well. I met a guy at the wedding yesterday, Jim Rowe, said his wife goes to church here. And the first thing Jim asked me in conversating, the older guy, I said something about moving to Newport and with my family. And he said, same wife? You with the same wife? I don't know what, I was like, yeah, with the same wife. <laughs> what do you, you sell wives or something? What's going on? <laughs> Real nice guy, actually. And I, I still don't know why he asked that question. He didn't know I was studying about this or. We need to talk about these issues in grace and in Jesus' name right before taking communion that we would be equipped for the lives that God's asked us to live, for the, the people that God's asked us to grow with, for the truth that God has asked us to have. So if you're here and you're single, I hope you heard something. If you're here and you're, you're married today, I hope you heard something. If you're here today and you've been divorced, Maybe you're single and divorced. Maybe you're remarried and divorced. I hope you heard something. And I hope in Jesus' name you wouldn't deride the teaching of God. That instead you would say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Just say, yes, Lord. Whatever you need, what I want. I need healing in my past. I need strength in my marriage. I need direction for my singleness, how to navigate, Lord. And we're going to take communion right now. And so I'd ask you to close your eyes. And if you're here, here today in your marriage, you're married right now. Your spouse is sitting next to you. Maybe they're at work. Maybe they're fighting a fire, literally. But you would say, you know what? I'm at church and I don't want to deride the Lord. I want to delight in him. And, and I'm married now. Maybe you're divorced and remarried. Maybe you're engaged. Maybe. But you would, you would want the Lord's will in his way and his help. And in your mar- maybe your marriage is tough. Maybe right now you've got papers served to you. Or maybe you're gonna still go to the court tomorrow. You're like, why did I come to church today? Or maybe there's no papers involved. You're, you're anti-divorce, but you're not in love. Your spouse is just a roommate, a business partner. You're not, it's not, it's not right. You know it. If you're married and you need help in your marriage in one way or another, would you just, heads are about, would you raise your, raise your hand right now? You can do that with your spouse. Humble yourself with your spouse. If your spouse is there, you don't want to freak them out, but just raise your hand if you feel your marriage needs help. You are so loved right now. God loves you. He's not mad at you. He brought you here on purpose today. Lord, you see the hands, and I, I just ask for healing and direction ministry right now, restoration. We don't want to deride you. We want to delight in you. For the married couples here, those who are planning on getting married soon, Lord, may they be biblical. May they be so humble. May they be so hopeful. We ask a healing upon them. You can put your hands down. And and if you're here and and you've been through a divorce, maybe you're remarried and you've been through a divorce, though, and your heart is still raw. If you were super honest, you you would show your bruises emotionally. 
the devastation, the disappointment, and, and you got a stiff upper lip, and you're moving forward, and maybe you're remarried and happy, but, but you would say, my heart is still, still hard, still broken, and maybe you don't even know, maybe there's no adjectives to put to your condition. You just want what the Lord has for you, and you've been divorced, and you need further healing. Would you just humbly raise up your hand to the Lord right now? just say, God, I just, I'm yours. I'm yours. Lord, take care of me. Raise up your hand if you need the, the Lord to take care of you. To, to lead you into better things or further healing or more revelation. What's he doing? Your, your hands are up, Lord. I just pray in Jesus' name you minister to those who are hurting. May there be closure in Jesus' name. Righteous closure. Direction and newness moving forward in Jesus' name. Thank you. We can put your hands down. And before we come to the table of communion, if you're here, I just want to address the single people too. If, you, if your heart is, is hurting for a, for a spouse or you, you want to know what to do, you just need the Lord to minister to your singleness. Maybe you're happy and single and you just want the Lord to confirm that. Just You need something from the Lord. You're single here today and you need Jesus to touch you. Would you raise your hand if that's you? I just want you to respond and say, yeah, I heard Jesus. I heard you. I'm where I'm at, but I want to be where you want me, Lord, or I am where you want me, and I just want you with me. You can put your hands down, Father, and in Jesus' name, we thank you that we know your love is for us, Lord, and it is sure and steadfast. It's displayed in this little communion cup that's full of grape juice, in this little, this little basket here that has crackers, Lord. These display, and they symbolize your blood spilled, your body broken for the single, for the married, for the divorced, for all of us, Lord, for the sons and the daughters. All we can do is plead the blood. And we ask in Jesus' name you would be honored as we partake in communion, celebrating your death, examining ourselves, proclaiming your soon return, and living in hope. We do what we do now because you did what you did. We rise victoriously. We take this communion to our lips and we lift our head back, our eyes upward. No shame, no guilt, righteousness imputed to our accounts because of Jesus. May the shame and the guilt, the regret and the pain be left at the altar. Don't take it with you. His blood covers you. Minister to us now, Lord, as we celebrate what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.